You are now listening to episode 69 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Here I'm talking with Keith Lamar, a.k.a. Bomani Shakur. I'm titling this uh, Exculpatory Evidence. It's tough to get a title for this one because I'm so outraged I wanted to use many other words, but... Uh, it's just uh, a little piece of the story here. Um, well, I uh, recently found out about Keith's story via an anarcho event and decided to just dig in and read about his case, read about his story. It's absolutely criminal um, what has happened to Keith. I believe Keith was wrongly convicted of a crime, murders, for which he was sentenced to death by the state of Ohio. And not only that, um, he's been held in solitary confinement for something like 21 years. Uh, I mean... I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to even begin to think about that. For a long portion of his solitary confinement, um, even when he did get his hour or two a day, um, he was not allowed human contact. Even with friends, family, loved ones. And uh, Keith had undertaken, a, along with some other prisoners, a um, hunger strike uh, to change the way they were treated. They got a little bit of outdoor privilege and human contact. Uh, so, what do we say here? Uh, Keith is um, he's a criminal. He's a murderer, I believe. He had a sentence that he was facing, that he was serving, I should say. And uh, there was a riot in a prison in 1993. This riot occurred in Lucasville, Ohio, the Lucasville State Penitentiary, I believe it's called. Nine prisoners and one um, prison guard were killed murdered during that uprising. Keith claims to have had no participation in that riot and that he is innocent of any of the murders. Uh, Well, I'm just, I'm going to let... We're just going to go right into Keith introducing himself, and uh, we're going to cover his story a little bit. What I would ask is um, if you, after hearing this, if you are moved by it or feel compelled or have some curiosity as to, to find out more, to do your own investigation, or to simply act, you could at least go to Keith's website. It is Keith. Lamar.org. 
there's info in the show notes. And Keith has a book called Condemned, The Whole Story. And you can find that on Amazon. Keith does not profit personally from the sale of that book. And he is on death row. The state of Ohio may soon be legally murdering him. So I don't even know if it's an issue if he were profiting from said book. Buy the book. Um, Read his website, his blog. He has a lot of links there of his writings and uh, evidence and legal records, his articles that he's written. Um, You can even lend words of support. You can sign up for his um, email notification newsletter. Um, Well, this one's a little different for me and uh, a little uncomfortable even bringing this. It's it's kind of scary. Well, um, here we go. I really hope you are moved by this interview with Keith Lamar, a.k.a. Bomani Shakur. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Keith Lamar, uh, a.k.a. Bomani Shakur. And I'm a death row prisoner at the Ohio State Penitentiary in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, you know, I've been on death row, the pa- death row for the past uh, 19 years, since 1995, as a result of my alleged uh, participation in the Lucasville Prison Uprising uh, that occurred in 1993. Um, it was alleged by the state that I uh, was the leader of a group that was uh, dubbed the Death Squad, who allegedly uh, were responsible for uh, the death of five suspected snitches during the uprising. The uprising, uh, based on the official account, was the result of a discrepancy between the uh, administration and Sunni Muslim prisoners at the institution who uh, refused to take a tuberculosis test. Uh, apparently, the serum that was being used to determine whether or not inmates were infected um, contained an alcoholic substance called phenol, which according to Islamic doctrines, the Muslims were prohibited from ingesting it. So, you know, they met with the ward and tried to... call is originating from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. Tried to, you know, prevail on the administration to, you know, offer them an alternative method by which they could be tested. You know, chest x-rays, putting tests things of that nature, and uh, the warden, a uh, guy named Arthur Tate, uh, flat out refused the request uh, and took a hardline approach and, you know, sort of um, gave the Muslims the ultimatum either they take the test or that he would lock them down and force them to take it. And so after giving them these guys this ultimatum, uh, which was on Friday, April the 9th, as I was saying, the Muslims, you know, based on the discrepancy they was having with the administration over the minister, the minister and uh, uh, mm-hmm. tuberculosis test, you know, they uh, met with the ward and tried to get him to offer them alternative ways in which to take the test since 
you know, the test that was being given, you know, contained an alcoholic substance, which they was, you know, prohibited from ingesting. So the warden gave him an ultimatum, basically, and told him that, you know, y'all either take the test or we're going to force you to take the test. And so the Muslims, you know, trying to get ahead of this forced lockdown that was uh, imminent, uh, decided to stage what they hoped would be a peaceful protest. But, you know, after they, um, you know, took the keys from the guards and uh, let prisoners out of their cell, the, you know, the peaceful protest turned into an 11-day ordeal during which nine inmates and one correctional officer were killed, you know. And um, so that was the, you know, the, the genesis of the riot. Okay. That was the the basis of it, you know. And, you know, the riot, as I just mentioned, lasted for 11 days. And, you know, so... But when these tuberculosis tests were given, you know, I, along with, you know, quite a few other guys, majority of the prisoners at Lucasville, I took the test. So I didn't have a, you know, beef with the administration. I wasn't a Muslim. Uh, so I didn't have a, a problem with taking the test. I took the test and didn't realize there was something going on between the administration and the Muslims. So, you know, when this all occurred, you know, I write about it in the book. You know, when this occurred, I was on the yard and I stayed on the yard except for a brief you know, surging back into the um, building to check on my personal belongings. But after I went back in and it was explained to me what was going on, I was given the decision whether or not I wanted to participate or, you know, go back on the yard. And I chose to, you know, go back on the yard, which is where I stayed, you know, the entire time until later on that morning the Ohio State Highway Patrol showed up and, you know, rescued us, so to speak. And took us into the gymnasium and then separated us into random groups of 10 and put us in the cell. You know, it was in this cell that, you know, really my problems began, you know. A guy named Dennis Weaver lost his life while in this cell. And, um, you know, we hadn't eaten. This trail is originating from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. You know, we hadn't eaten or slept in you know, in over 24 hours, and, you know, and, and it was a real, like, high-intensity, stressful situation. And um, being locked in that cell, we were naked, you know, initially. And, um, you know, a lot of guys were, you know, you know, very agitated because of this. And um, so they came around and threw sandwiches in the cell. And, you know, some guys took more sandwiches than, you know, they were supposed to. And mm -hmm. an argument uh, ensued, and these two guys got into it, and... The guy ended up, they ended up fighting and wrestling. The guy choked this guy out, the guy named Dennis Weaver, and he lost consciousness and died. You know, and then, you know, when the investigators came and took us out of the cell, you know, mm -hmm. I, along with the other guys, said we were asleep. You know, we lied to the investigators and mm -hmm. said we were asleep. And because of this gay, the guy who actually did the um, crime, the opportunity to shift the blame onto me and another guy named Eric Scales. And um, they said that me and Eric, uh, or Eric and I, uh, forced them, forced him to, to do, you know, to kill Dennis, which I was see. a lie, you know. Mm -hmm. And Eric ultimately wasn't even charged. I was the only one ultimately charged, you know, for um, allegedly forcing these three guys to kill one, kill this uh, prisoner who I'm speaking about. And um, yeah, so that's basically how, you know, I got thrown into the mix. You know, I, um, you know, uh, refused to become an informant and, you know, thereby allowed this guy to open the, you know, open the door for this guy to 
say I forced him to do what he did, and in that way he was trying to lessen, you know, his culpability and you know uh, try to escape the you know the penalty of his you know uh, his crime. You know? Yeah, yeah. So after that happened, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, but you know, um that was just really the beginning of my ordeal. You know, after, you know, being subjected to these type of uh to the situation, being placed in a situation where a guy lost his life, you know, I was, you know, after all was said and done, I was, you know, you know, very angry, upset about it. You know, uh not only that, when like I said, when the riot first began, I came out into the yard and several hours into the riot, that's when the dead bodies from the L side were being dumped out onto the yard. And I stood there along with 400 or so prisoners and watched these dead bodies, you know, being dumped on the yard. And, you know, at the same time, the Ohio State Highway Patrol, the National Guard, the people whose job it was to intervene and, you know, stop this violence, stood on the outside of the perimeter fence and watched these bodies being dumped. And so, you know, it occurred to me along with all the other guys that one of those dead bodies could have been mine. You know, and so, you know, you know, going through that experience and going through the experience of what happened in the cell, you know, after all was said and done, you know, I, along with, the, you know, quite a few other guys, you know, lined ourselves against the administration and, you know, came out against guys becoming informants. And we participated in the various demonstrations and whatnot. And, you know, this is how I believe I became a target. You know, um, they singled me out and charged me with being the leader of this group called the Death Squad, as I mentioned earlier, and um, mm-hmm. you know, charged me with these deaths, said I was the leader of this group, but um, interestingly enough, you know, um, you know, well, first I should say that, you know, it was three groups of gangs who were said to have presided over the ride, the Sunni Muslims, as I mentioned earlier, the Black Gangster Disciples, and the Aryan Brotherhood. Well, when the, everything was said and done, they needed you know, one of these the leaders from one of these groups to turn states, and ultimately it was the leader of the Black Gangster Disciples, a guy named Anthony Lavelle. He turned states, and as it turns out, he made he and his his gang were responsible for most of the deaths. That's you know the general consensus that he and his cronies were responsible for most of these deaths. And sixty yeah. seconds left on this call. So when the smoke cleared, you know, you know he and you know, several of his uh, um, gang, uh, his cohorts, they turned states. And so to, to escape the consequences of their crimes, they turned states' evidence and shift that blame onto other people, man. And um, the, the state allowed them to do that because they needed these guys' testimony to convict these other guys, uh, these so-called leaders of the Sunni Muslims mm-hmm. and Aryan Brotherhood. They allowed them to shift the weight, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so they came to me, you know, and... Um, said I was responsible for these deaths, and they told me, you know, where you just cop out to one murder, and we're running the time concurrent with the time you're already doing. And so essentially, I would have got, got with, you know, virtually no time added on to my sentence. Ten seconds left on this call. Had I just copped the plea. Oh, okay, yeah, as I was saying, you know, um, mm-hmm. so, no sooner than they charged me with these murders, they came and offered me a deal and, you know, asked me to cop out to murder, and they would run the time concurrent with the time I was already doing, which essentially would have meant I would have received virtually no additional time added on to my sentence, you know. So they didn't really, you know, um, believe, they knew I didn't, you know, 
that I wasn't the leader of the Black Gangster Disciples. They knew exactly who that was, mm -hmm. and they knew I wasn't inside the prison, you know, at the time that these murders were, you know, occurred. And um, but they needed a way to clear their books, and since I was doing 18 years of life, and and, and um, according to them, or uh, didn't have anything to lose, they saddled me with these with these murders, with the with the uh, intention that I would cop out, mm -hmm. with the with the on an assumption that I would cop out, they would be able to clear their books, they'd be able to tell society or the, the public that you know we got our man, and you know that was you know that would been the end of it, but I didn't cop out. You know, I didn't accept the deal. You know, it would have been a deal had I killed these five people, copping out the one murder, that would have been a hell of a deal yeah. if I'd have been guilty of these crimes. But, uh, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm innocent of these crimes. I, I pled not guilty of these crimes, not because, you know, it was something cool for me to do because I was not guilty. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to, you know, plead guilty to something I didn't do, and I refused to do that, and I went to trial, you know, expecting, you know, um, that I would receive a fair trial. You know, and, um, you know, that didn't happen. I went to trial. They withheld evidence, you know, and um, I, wasn't even, I wasn't even able to allow to put on the defense. The only thing I was able to do during my trial is call guys who had saw me on the yard. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't able to refute any of the claims that was lodged against me or anything of that nature because the state willfully withheld evidence. It was years and years later, and after I was already sentenced to death, and been on death row for years, almost a decade, that I discovered some of the statements that they withheld. And as it turns out, you know, several members of the Black Gangster Disciple, one guy in particular named Aaron Jefferson, came forward and admitted to killing someone mm -hmm. for whom I was convicted and, you know, uh, sentenced to death, a guy named Daryl DePino. And um, the state withheld this statement. I mean, the guy actually came forward and admitted to killing this guy, mm -hmm. and the state refused to turn over this statement to me. In another instance, another member of one of the gangs who was said to have presided over the riot, a uh, member from the Aaron Brotherhood, a guy named Freddie Franks, was already indicted for another person for whom I was convicted and sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. And when they charged me with, the, uh, the, with these cases, they, you know, this indictment mysteriously disappeared. And another guy who testified on a guy named Anthony Walker, you know, uh, said he uh, that I was responsible for this guy, Albert Steano. Come to find out, it was witnesses who claimed that Anthony Walker was responsible for these deaths. And he, too, was a member of the Black Gangster Disciples. And so, you know, my jury was, wasn't able to hear this evidence, you know. And so they found me guilty because I couldn't defend myself, you know, and, and because the prosecutor, the state, you know, didn't do their job and turn over these evidence, and you know, and, and you know, because of that, they deprived me of a fair trial, and I was sentenced to death. Yeah. When I, you know, when I came to death row, you know, I knew I was innocent, and, and you know, um, this stuff started trickling in slowly but surely. You know, what the state did, because what they did to us, and, and how they hindered us from pursuing our, you know, uh, innocence. They the discovery. We know whenever you are charged with a crime, in the United States. You know, you have the right, you know, according to the Constitution, to face your accusers, you know, right. and um, make a request, a request upon the state to turn over any evidence that is favorable to your defense. So they, you know, charge you with murder, and they have statements from guys saying that they, somebody else committed this murder. They're supposed to turn over that evidence, even though it weakens their case. This is yep. called exculpatory evidence. Exculpatory evidence, and, um, Yeah, exactly. Right. And so they didn't do that. You know, mm -hmm. Brian, they didn't do that in my case, and, uh, you know, so this they is, deprived me of a fair trial. This yeah. is hugely, profoundly important 
Uh, I, I really want people to look into this for for your. Are do you have current legal actions? This call is yeah yeah right. from so, Ohio Correctional Institution and may be recorded or monitored. You know all the stuff I'm talking about. I talk about it in the book. Yeah. You know uh, quite extensively, man. But um, in 2007, I went back to court mm-hmm. for evidentiary hearing, and um, this is something that's very rare nowadays because you know the Anti-Terrorism Death Penalty Act that President Clinton signed into law back in 1996 kind of somewhat um, limited the amount of um, hearings that you could have in federal court now. I see. And so um, I was granted an evidentiary hearing, which was a rare, momentous thing, and I went back to court and was able to put the prosecutor on the stand and question them as to how they, you know, how, what criteria that they used, that was used to, you know, deprive me of this evidence, deprive Mm -hmm. me of a fair trial, and it comes to find out that, you know, they used what was determined or later determined a narrow Brady standard. You know, um, they set up a criteria that made it impossible, you know, to um, to turn over this evidence that, that was favorable to my defense. Hmm. And so all the other guys, you know, been, even though it was my evidentiary here, and the other four guys who was placed on death row alongside me for being, you know, alleged leaders of the uprising, all they cases was, you know, uh, um, suddenly put on hold, were put on hold. And, and you know, to allow their attorneys to go back and comb the prosecutor's file to see what exactly was withheld, you know, because the judges, the district, the district judges in their respective cases said, "Oh, you can't do this," you know, uh, this is not, you know, uh, adherence to the Constitution, and so um, we're going to allow these guys' attorneys to go back, you know, because you don't know what their defense strategy, you know, could have been or would have been. You know, had you turned over this evidence, so we're gonna let them go back and comb the files and determine for themselves. Yeah, it's, it's you know it's um, completely ridiculous because even as um yeah you know, for you they they have you say you have to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth right. means you have to reveal all you know. Right. Whereas the state did that's not, right. they were not held to the same standard. No, it, and that's how yeah. it typically goes, Brian, in yeah. the, in the system. You know, you know it's just. It's this thing in the um, code of ethics where it says the prosecutor's job is not to win guilty verdicts, but to see that justice is done. Mm-hmm. You know, that's rhetoric. You know, that sounds good. You know, right, right. when you go into law school, you uh, your first year, you're a law student. You learn these type of words. You know, but we live on the system of capitalism. Capitalism is based on competition. So, you know, you know all that good talk aside, man, um, you get promoted by the, how many cases that you win. Oh, and course, so prosecutors yeah. are more or less, you know, uh, encouraged to cheat, encouraged to lie, because this is how they got promotion. In fact, most of the attorneys who prosecute these Lucasville cases, you know, are judges now. You know, they were rewarded for, you know, these convictions that um, mm-hmm. they secured. Mm-hmm. You know, but come to find out, they cheated, and yeah. they cheated across the board. And so we initially we was asking for a general amnesty. You know, that they, they throw away all these cases, similar to what happened at Attica, New York, and, uh, and, uh, back in the, uh, I think late, early 80s. Mm-hmm. Hold on for one second. Yes. Hold on for one second, all right? We were just talking about that the state. You know, the prosecutors. The, yeah. And they have turn over and, this to Yeah. Right. And then that prosecutors right, right. are rewarded for having perfect prosecution records, meaning always right. getting convictions. Not. Right. 
determining truth. <laughs> it's not the way it right. works. So, right, right, but that's how it works. Right, right. Unless you have money, and now if you have money, you know it's a different ball game altogether. Because then you can, you know, uh, 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 force these people to follow the law. Right. You know, but you know that's what I mean. You have to, you know, again, understood from a capitalist. An Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. You know, under the system of capitalism, freedom itself is a commodity. Justice is a commodity, something that can be purchased. Mm-hmm. It's something that is reserved for the highest, highest bidder. So if you have a paid attorney, someone who you're paying, you know, a couple hundred dollars an hour, you know what I mean? Miraculously, all these things that I'm talking to you about, you know, don't happen, you know, in those type of cases. But when you're poor, you know, they, you know, they come to you with a deal. And as a poor person, you post, you, you're, you're expected to be happy that you're being afforded a deal, you know, and it's like... I was almost as if, you know, by, you know, standing on my innocence by pleading not guilty that, you know, the state, the prosecutor, they was upset with me. You know, how dare you demand dare a trial? You. How dare you speak up? Yep. You, you right. know, you, you, you poor that. person, you, right. you know, uh, 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 so, okay, you want a trial? We're going to give you a trial. Mm-hmm. We're going to show you what justice looks like. Yep. Yep. You know, you're going to waste our time. You're going to make us, you know, cart our, all these files and shit up to Ironton, Ohio, and I got to do all this work. And, you know, okay, so what we're going to do, we gonna, we're not going to turn over any evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And the judge who they had, he colluded with them, of course. You know, it was through him that they was allowed to do these things. And like I said, Brian, it was years and years later do I really finally, because I didn't know anything about the law. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a, a right. high school dropout. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about the law. But once I came to death row, you know, instead of burying my head in the sand like a lot of guys do, I studied the law. I, yeah. you know, kept, I, you know, tried to teach myself how to write, you know, <laughs> not knowing that I would have to write a book, not knowing that, you know, things I would, you know, going back to what happened to my attorneys to get back to that. After I went back for this evidentiary hearing, it was determined, you know, uh, that these the, the prosecutors, the state used the narrow Brady standard. You know, my attorneys needed to follow up in, with motions to request that I, you know, be allowed to comb the prosecutor's files that the other guy did. And right. for some inexplicable reason, they refused to do that. And, you know, even your though, own, you know, I begged and, yeah, own my own attorneys so- oh, wow. refused to do that. Okay. You know, they refused to file the motion. They refused to do their job, essentially, you know. And um, because of that, I haven't spoken to them in over a year except, you know, one or two occasions to tell them to please send whatever motions that they filed on my behalf. You know, because this is the thing, when you're poor and you're indigent, you know, you're afforded, you know, uh, uh, with representation. That's also in accordance with to the Constitution. But, you know, um, you know, these attorneys that you get, you know, they are, you know, not equally paid as the state, you know, as the prosecutors, you know, so they not don't even really have an incentive to, you know, put forth the type of effort that, you know, a death penalty case or these kind of cases require. You know, they don't want to do work and how they make money is by, you know, uh juggling, you know, three or four cases at the same time. And so I'm not saying that these these lawyers couldn't have done the necessary job. They didn't do it because you know, they're lazy because they have other jobs. They're not, you know, being paid extra to yeah. do it. And they felt that this was a, something extra, you know, you know, you know. And that's how it happens when you're poor in this country, man. You know, uh, it's a bunch of bullshit. These people, you know, they was, you know, um, assigned to represent me, but they're doing anything but that. And I haven't spoken to them, man. So this is where I'm at. And unless you can show that they was in 
totally or blatantly incompetent, it's hard to get these people removed from your case because, mm -hmm. you know, they, they operate under the assumption that beggars, you know, can be choosy. You heard that saying before, but that's basically how the system works, man. Beggars can't be choosy and you can't just really nearly, you know, uh, uh, decide to get, you know, to get your attorneys off your case, yeah. you know. And so, you know, I'm stuck with these, um, um, you know, I don't even know what to call them. I'm stuck with them, man, and I'm you going into the final phase of my... Yeah, man, I'm 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 right now waiting a date to be set for all arguments to be heard in my case. And, you know, this is basically essentially my last hope for relief. And I'm going into this final process with attorneys that I haven't spoken to in over years. So this was another reason I wrote the book that, you know, since I didn't get a fair trial, since my, my own attorneys refused to represent me, I, I was hoping to retry my case in the court of public opinion. Mm-hmm and see if I can have the public, you know, weigh in on whether or not what was done to me was just and whether or not I should lose my life based on what was done to me, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's the whole point of me writing to them, and, you know, I hope, you, have you know, 60 seconds you know, people left on this call. And I hope people will go out and get the book, read it, and if they believe in it, if what I've written, you know, resonate with them, that they will, you know, help, you know, support me and, and um, you know, join me in my efforts to stay alive. So that's the whole per point and purpose of writing the book, yeah. yeah. Are you going to be able to keep stay with us? Are you going to be able to call back? Yeah, I'll call back one more time, all okay. right? Your call is being connected. Thank you for using Global Telling. Yeah. Hi, Keith. Yeah, okay, you're back. All right, yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. can we cover yeah, just exactly what you've been through personally and how you haven't... All the prosecution part aside, you haven't been treated properly in prison. And I really want no, to go no. into this and let people know just yeah. just what we're talking about here and then what what eventually led to a hunger strike and let's let's right. cover this a bit. Well, you know, after we were convicted for these uh riot related crimes, we was immediately put in solitary confinement. We we weren't placed alongside other death row prisons. We've never been on death row proper, the five of us who uh, were convicted out of the riot, you know, you know, so, you know, from the very outset, man, it's all been, it been, it's been all about revenge, about retaliation. You know, guard lost his life during the riot, and understandably people were very upset about that. And um, since that time, you know, it, we've been kept in, you know, kept in solitary confinement, and um, essentially tortured, basically, man, because, you know, these places, you know, dealing with sensory deprivation, um, uh, uh, um, can't go outside. You know, when we first got here, you know, you, we, wondered, we weren't allowed books, uh, uh, socks, T-shirts, and, you know, um, the minimum amount of property. And, you know, for, you know, over a decade, we lived like that, you know. And, um, so they, they kept you alone all because for, like, most of the day, completely alone? Well, I'm in long right now. I'm in solitary confinement right now as we speak. You know, I still haven't been moved, you know, um, alongside, you know, normal or regular death row um, prisoners. I'm in Supermax Penitentiary in Youngstown, Ohio, and the death row population is in Chillicothe, you know, a totally different, you know, environment than this. You know, I'm in solitary confinement. I'm in cell, you know, 22, 23 hours a day, which mm -hmm. is where I've been since 1993 for over 21 years now, over 7,665 days I've been in this situation, you know, all because of my alleged participation in the riot. So, you know, I played not guilty thinking I was going to get a fair trial. I didn't. 
you know, I got sentenced to death, and I'm thinking that was the punishment for my last crime. It wasn't. I was, you know, put inside a confinement and essentially tortured for the past 21 years. And, you know, um, when we came here, you know, we filed a civil suit, a class action civil suit against, you know, the state, uh, you know, uh, again, for cruel and unusual punishment, for lack of due process, and uh, um, Eighth and Fifth Amendment uh, issues. And uh, we went to court, and I was one of the class representatives, along with Jason Robb, and it took us eight years of litigation. We got them to build outside recreation areas. That was good. Uh, uh, but we couldn't allow them or force them to allow us to have full contact visits, you know, after eight years of litigation and millions and millions of dollars that was spent, the judge decided that he couldn't force these people to do that. And after he made that decision, the lawyers who represented us threw their hands up and said, well, we tried. That was, you know, we did the best we can do. And as lawyers, you know, it's, it's understandable that they would have that attitude. But, you know, I hadn't touched my family in over a decade, as I said, and, I, and my little niece, you know, a uh, young, young lady named uh, Kayla, young girl named Kayla, I should say, 11-year-old girl, you know, she's been coming to see me since she was a baby, and she mm -hmm. just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and I, it just was agonizing, man, not to be able to, you know, hug her, and, you know, she figured out on her own one day, we was on a visit, you know, me along with her parents, I along with her parents, and um, we were talking, she was eavesdropping on the conversation, and, you know, and I was talking about how long I've been down, and she just added it up herself, man, and said, well, if you've been down here for 13 years, and I'm seven years old, I mean, you never hugged me? You know, it was a heartbreaking moment in my, um, you know, life, man. It just stopped me in my tracks. And I just, you know, from that, just decided, man, that I'm not going to, you know, tolerate that anymore. I'm not going to, because I've already been punished for my last crime. I'm sentenced to death, which is the highest penalty known to man. And on top of that, you're going to tell me I'm not going to be, I can't touch my family. I just, you know, I just had enough of it, man. And, you know, um, convinced the other guys, you know, that, you know, we shouldn't accept this. And so we went on a hunger strike and accomplished in 12 days what we couldn't accomplish this in all those years, you know. From an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. That is, we was, you know, granted to first semi-contact business, then ultimately full contact business where, you know, I'm now allowed to hug and, you know, kiss my family and sit out in the vision room and eat with my, eat lunch with my family and friends. And so, you know, in that sense, man, it's been uh, uh, one of the biggest blessings that has happened in my life over these past, you know, years or so, you know. But, yeah, it's still a hellish situation that I'm living under, Brian. Uh, mm -hmm. I said I'm in solitary confinement, man, and, um, you know, that in itself comes with a, a lot of, you know, pain, a lot of agony, mental anguish and whatnot. And, you know, it's only by, you know, uh, the blessing of my family and friends that I'm, even you know stable enough to have this conversation with you man yeah, because yeah. you know uh, you know most guys don't fare too well in these type of situations i'm telling my guys who was in here for 18 two years let alone two, two decades right right and so it's just by some miracle man that i've been able not just me but jason and hassan i think us you know being able to talk to each other help test each other's reality has played a big part in us maintaining our sanity but it's relatively speaking you don't get to this type of situation unscathed man it's you know, you take hits, you know, to your, you know, uh, you know, equilibrium, man. And so, you know, I'm not claiming that I'm perfectly sane. Of course, I'm, you know, but I'm, you know, relatively sane, <laughs> I should say, you know. <laughs> he you sounds know, but, um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's it's all uh, relative, man. You know, sure. um, you know, um, I'm sure, you know, if I was, you know, if, if when I should say I'm released from this shit, I'm going to definitely seek out some psychological help, man, to help me process 
some of the shit that I've been through, so I won't let this anger that has built up in me over the years consume me. You know, you always hear about these guys getting off death row for 20, 30 years and, and find out that they was wrongfully convicted. A guy named Glenn Ford just was released out of Louisiana just recently after doing 30 years, and, you know, they asked him, you know, you know, do we harbor any resentment? And was shocked when he said yes. Yeah. Damn right. You know, they expect somehow, you know, to you know, a person to be thrown in the dungeon for thirty years to come out and not have resentment for the person who put them there unjustly. Uh-huh. And meanwhile these people who do these shit, you know, they're not held, you know, accountable for it in no shape, form or fashion. You know, in in fact, you know, the rewards that they have, you know, uh reaped over the years, why they knowingly themselves know that what they did was wrong. They don't, there's no repercussions for what they did. And it's a crime, man. You know, one guy, this guy named Darren Jamison, who I had the uh, honor of uh, speaking to uh, several weeks ago, you know, he was on death row for 17 years in Ohio and received six execution dates. And at one point, he was even taken to the death house and was asked what did he want for his last meal. That's how close that he had, you know, uh, got to being executed. Wow. And, you know, ultimately it was discovered that, you know, the prosecutor withheld evidence. And, you know, again, interestingly enough, man, the same prosecutor who withheld evidence in this guy's case is the same prosecutor who put this case like, together against, you know, us, you know, the Lucasville Five and, you know, this guy named Mark Pietmeyer. So, so this is this guy's M.O. You know, I didn't know this going into this, of course, but there's something, also something that has been revealed since, you know, the Lucasville prosecutions, you know. And, um, yeah, but when you're poor, man, you know, this kind of shit happens and people hunch their shoulders and say, oh, well, you know, you know, so that's what I'm hoping, you know, that, you know, to circumvent, man, that people, you know, can just say they didn't know. At the very least, I'm going to let as many people, right. you know, by the time it's over with, the whole world is going to know about what happened to me and whether or not they sit back and allow it to happen, that's, that's another issue, but it won't be for lack of, you know, knowing that, you know, they, they, they won't have that as an excuse. Right. You know, that's what I intend to make sure of, that everybody's going to know about this. It won't be a situation where they say, well, we didn't know. Well, you knew, and you didn't do anything, you know, so if that be the case. But I don't think, you know, so far I've been having a favorable, um, you know, react- response to the book and, you know, and, you know, doing, you know, you know, having opportunities to talk, you know, do, you know, situation shows yeah. like yours or... Right. You know, yeah, it's it's been helpful, man. So yeah, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. You know, even if it's just reaching out to one or two people, man, it, it doesn't really matter to me. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. I don't know if you had the opportunity to get the book yet and read it for yourself, but uh, have you? I have not read it yet. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, just read it, man. Order it. Um, don't yeah, worry, I hope I'll so, have, man. Yeah, that's I'll, what it's about. Yeah. I will include all the links and everything. Don't you worry about that, and mention all the places where to buy it and all that stuff. But um, how about okay, a few more good. words about, you know, what people can do? Well, that's it, man. Basically, help me spread the word. You know, as yeah. I mentioned earlier, I have an upcoming. I'm waiting a date to be set for my oral arguments, which you know might be in the near future or sometimes next year. We don't know. Okay. But whenever that um, date is set, I'm going to I'm going to ask as many as people. I'm asking you know for as many people as possible to attend that hearing on my behalf because ironically I'm the only one who who 
isn't allowed to attend this, you know, most important hearing, you know, that weighs so heavily on what might become of me, you know, you know, based on some kind of law, I'm not allowed to be there. So I'm asking, you know, people, you know, normal everyday citizens, people who have read my story, who believe in my story to show up in my place and make sure that these attorneys, you know, do their job, you know, and again, you know, you know, you need witnesses, you know, and, um, you know, witnesses, people, you know, who can see, you know, for themselves what this process entails and, you know, you know, declare in my name whether or not I've received justice. And I'm not saying that these, having everybody there will, you know, change the, you know, justice's mind on whether, how they going to rule, how they will rule, you know, but, um, and I'm not saying that writing the book is, you know, will ultimately save my life, you know what I mean? You know, those, you know, things are yet to be determined, but, you know, since this is something that was within my power to do, I did it. You know, so that even I do, even if my worst fears, you know, come true, I won't have to be in that situation, you know, regretting that I didn't do this or do, didn't do that, you know, in, on my own behalf. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, people, you know, get the book, read it, and, you know, um, um, show up, you know, show up, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it goes without saying that, you know, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm a very appreciative for anybody who, um, you know, latch on to the story and show up on my behalf. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was a, it was a lot to digest for, uh, for me and I'm sure for the audience. Um, this is quite a different story than what I normally bring. And, um, I really hope people will dive in and discover more about what you've gone through and wow. Yeah, there's been quite a few. It's been a documentary um, just recently uh, produced and released about the riot called The Shadows of Lucasville. Mm-hmm. Um, people can, you know, go on my website and get a link to that. Um, there's been, you know, several books. Of, uh, Scott Lynn, um, same historian, um, scholar, wrote a book called Lucasville, The Untold Story. And um, in that book, you won't learn too much about my case, but you learn about the uh, anatomy of the riot, you know, the, the conditions that preceded the uprising mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, uh, the details surrounding the guards' death, you don't learn anything particularly about me because, you know, I was the missing link in this whole thing. I was the one piece to the puzzle that didn't fit, you know, and so people had a hard time explaining it. You know, how did this guy, where did he come from? He's not a part of any, he's not a member of any of the gangs. How did he, you know, do this? How did he, you know, do what y'all claim he did? You know, and people are starting to ask ask that question. Like, you know, how did you get involved in this? You know, and so, you know, that's another reason why I wrote the book to, you know, you know, to try to, you know, fill in some of them gaps. But of course, you know, I can only speculate. I can't go into, you know, the states, you know, for reasons for doing it. Only thing I can really say is that I'm innocent and that I can prove I'm innocent. You know, you can go to my website, KeithLamar.org, and you can view these statements that I'm talking about. This is not just me saying these things. Go to my website. These statements are on my website. You know, uh, uh, my book is on Amazon.com for anybody who want, likes, wants to purchase it, or you can go to my website and find a link for that. And so, like I'm saying, I'm not asking people to just blindly take my word and show up and, you know, take, you know, time out of their life. You know, um, I actually, I'm, I have the statements to prove my innocence. So if justice is something that you, if justice is something that you care about, then, you know, um, get involved. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, you know, this can happen to your son. This can happen to somebody that you love. You know, and that's typically what happens, you know, uh, you know, you know, become aware of this type of situation, you know, you know, take responsibility for that knowledge. It shows up in your life in another form. So, you know, you know, um, hopefully people, 
you know, hearing this won't pretend that they didn't hear it and that they will, you know, take the next step and follow through. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, you know, you know, that's how, you know, justice ultimately is, is uh carried out, man, by yeah. normal everyday citizens getting involved in the process. So, you know, I wanna thank you again for Brian for, you know, allowing me to, you know, um come on your um, program and oh, yeah. um thank you, you, know, you know, talk about it. It's, yeah, yeah, thank you. You have ten seconds left on this call. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hey man, do you do Hello? you get, Hey Keith. Yeah. Do you get to get outside at all? Yeah, yeah, I did to go out. That was um one of the things that um we won in the civil suit that I was spoke about earlier. Yeah. They built outside rec- recreation areas and so yeah, I get the opportunity to go out once a day, man, now. Okay, good. Unlike most of the guys here, you know, um after the um lawsuit and the hunger strike, those things we pretty much are entitled to all the privilege that other death row prisoners are, you know, are entitled to. And so, um, yeah, we're just here at the Supermax prison, yeah. you know. Yeah. Are there any birds out there yeah. in that yard? Yeah, birds. Yeah. It's the atmosphere. It's earth, man. Yeah. Good. Birds nice. out there, they don't come down in the um, cage. Because of, right, right. Yeah, they do come down in the cage. <laughs> they come down, guys feed the birds and shit. Yeah. yeah, man, it's just um, you outside, you know, the sun, you know, the wind, all that's out there. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's key yeah. to m- mental health and spiritual health. That's for sure. Yeah, that's so, right, man. Um, it's a human right, regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's right. I agree. You know, I agree with you wholeheartedly, man. Um, and um, that's why we fought so hard for it. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, you know, we haven't lost our minds, man, because yeah. we've won these. You know these certain privileges, man, and they call them privileges, but they're human rights, as you said. Yeah. You know, and um, every human being should be able to hug their mother. Every human being should be able to breathe fresh air. You know, mm-hmm. and um, we live in a civilized country, man, and um, that civilization should extend even to those who, you know, run afoul, even to those <clears throat> who, you know, break the laws. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, for most prisoners, they are being um, you know, allowed to come back out in society, and you want these people to be, if you want these people to be normal, you know, citizens, then you have to be willing to, you know, forgive them. You know, you can't continue to hold over, you know, their head and continue to punish them, and that's what's happening in this society that we, you know, live in, man. Guys come and pay their debts to society, and yet when they release, they continue to pay their debt to society because they have to let people know that they was in prison, and because of that, people are being discriminated against, and you know, it's just a, you know, a ridiculous, uh, um, you know, formula, man. And it seems like in the richest, most powerful country in the world that we should be able to do better than that, you know. And, um, you know, and, and you know, one of the things that, you know, create crime, you know, which is poverty, you know, um, people need to have, you know, serious conversations about this shit because, you know, to, you know, uh, you know, get tough on crime without getting tough on the economic, you know, situation in this country is a bit disingenuous. You know, and politicians who call for this, you know, who get elected mm-hmm. use, you know, crime to scare people into, you know, electing them, you know, into public office, man, need to be ashamed of themselves. And people themselves need to become more aware and more knowledgeable about these issues that we discussing, man, because, you know, people don't steal and rob and sell drugs for the hell of it. You know, because it's fun, it's a hobby. They do that right. because they're hungry. They do this because they don't have any other way to, any other means to, you know, uh, provide for themselves, mm-hmm. man. And so people need to quit, you know, believing that, buying that narrative, man, that, you know, 
guys commit crimes. And by the way, it, it should be a crime that the weapons one percent you know, own close to 50% of all the wealth and resources, that mm-hmm. should be a crime, the unequal distribution of wealth, you know, and those are the kind of conversations that you got to have when you're talking about crime and punishment, mm-hmm. man, you know, you know, and if you're not talking about those things, about economics and the distribution of wealth, you know, uh, then it's not really having a real conversation about justice, man, because it has to be economic justice before you can talk about criminal justice, you know, yeah. and so that's one of the things that, you know, I, I want to get out to people too, man. But yeah, Brian, again, yeah. you know, it's good to talk to you, man. You oh, know, I'm glad uh, we had this opportunity. Yeah. I'm going to read your book and then we'll do a little follow up if you would like. I'd, I'd, I'd really appreciate yeah, yeah. that. Cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot, man. All right. You know, have a nice day. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay, All good. Right, stay strong, Keith. All right, thanks, man. I All appreciate right. it. I like that poem, man. I, I read it. Uh, yeah, interesting poem. Oh, the yeah. Etheridge Night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Calls originating yeah. from an Ohio correctional institution and may be recorded or monitored. Yeah. Etheridge Knight is one of the greatest American poets. He's one of the world's greatest poets, and uh, really? yeah, the I idea. Never of, heard of. Yeah, and the idea of ancestry is a powerful poem. Um, so, yeah, um, uh, thanks for reading it and checking it out, and um, I'm looking into some of the things, um, your book, and I will report back. <laughs> okay, good, right. good. I look forward to it, man. All right. We'll all right. Soon, yeah. Keith, for sure. All right. Thanks, okay. man. Thanks a lot, man. Have a good day, all right? Bye.